You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Good morning, Stonegate. It's good to have you. Uh, you know, I had a thought this week. Uh, what if I write an autobiography? I'm 34 years old. I'm not going to write an autobiography. But if I did write an autobiography, I'm pretty confident the title would be Confessions of a Spiritual Spaz. I feel like that's a very appropriate title for a book like that. My life, uh, all 34 years of it, has been a long series of jumping back and forth like a spaz from faith to fear and fear to faith. And I'm all over the place. I'm tripping, I'm stumbling, I'm fumbling all over myself, all throughout life uh, between this faith and fear and trying to be a man of faith, but at the same time being wrecked with fear. Does anybody else relate with that? Am I the only one that's like that? Okay, I I hope not, because if not, then I I feel very weird on the stage. I hope you are confident, too, in the fact that you're in the presence of good company. We are spiritual flip-flops, right? Spiritual spasmatics. We jump back and forth from faith to fear all the time. I remember in June of 2017... I had just finished preaching, Sunday, Sunday morning, just finished preaching about the amazing, great promises of God. Uh, one lady in my church said, you know that you're passionate about your topic and that's going to be a good sermon when you're slapping the pulpit, right? So that was a slap the pulpit kind of Sunday. It was like, God is good! Right? I mean, I just, I mean, all Sunday morning, just proclaiming the good promises of God and how we can trust God and that God is going to do what He says. And man, I was, I was loving, I was connecting with the audience. The audience was visibly receiving the message. I mean, it was a great Sunday. Worship was moving. We sang songs about the promises of God. And I went home that day after church, ready to just put on slippers, happy in the Lord, going to watch Paw Patrol from the out with my kids, knowing that God's promises are real and faithful, and it was great. And Rachel says, honey, what do you think about me uh, running a few errands? I said, yeah, sure, go ahead. So there we are, kids and I just piled up on the couch watching Paw Patrol, and Rachel comes back way sooner than we expected her to, and she says, I've got this massive migraine in the front of my head. I, I, I don't know what's going on. I just need to go lie down. So I go, I help her lay down, and I help her uh, get all settled in, and I come back and I watch the kids, and I go back in to check on her later, and she's lying face down on the bed, unconscious. I'm freaking out. Rachel's not a prankster, right? Um, She's tried to be a prankster. She's not very good at it, so uh, I'm thinking, okay, surely she's not She's not joking with me. I'm, I'm shaking her. I'm like, Rachel, Rachel, Rachel. I'm clapping. I'm doing everything I can possibly do. But she's not moving. She's not responding. And I go running into the living room. I get my phone. I'm going to call 911. I mean, I've never had to call 911 in my life. But I'm going to call 911. And just, I, I don't know what to do. And I come back in just frantic and fumbling. Phone's dropping on the floor. And Rachel stirs. She rolls over and she moans. And she starts asking, where am I? Where am I? She's, she's clearly, something's not right. I say, honey, we're gonna, we got to go to the hospital. She's confused about why. She's not sure why. I'm, I'm trying to get her into the car, and she's fighting me. She's scared. She's confused, and I just have to, have to physically pick up my wife and carry her out to the car, put her in, put her seatbelt on. And I have to call a neighbor and say, come over and, and watch the kids. And I drive to Waxahachie Baylor as if I'm auditioning to be a stunt driver in Fast and Furious. <laughs> 
I mean, they're fortunate I didn't drive that car through their front door into the emergency room. We get in there, they get Rachel all prepped, and she's in the bed, and they're watching her, and the doctor's like, I just don't know what's going on. And they keep watching, they keep watching. And finally he comes back in and he says, we have one thing we have to check for. Uh, she's shown signs of an aneurysm. Um, and if it is an aneurysm, we have a very short window of time to work. Now, I'm a doctor, but I'm not that kind of doctor. Okay, so uh, I'm not a medical man, but I know that aneurysms are bad news. Um, I pastored people whose husbands had aneurysms and died. Um, I know that even if you survive the aneurysm, life looks very different than what it did before. So I just, I hear that and it just crushes me. And I melted. Now, if you think I mean that uh, figuratively, no, no, no. I collapsed on the floor and became a puddle. I, I, I just, I, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. I had been a lion in the pulpit that Sunday morning. God's promises are great. God's promises are good. And now I'm lying on the emergency room floor struggling to believe they're true. Realizing that my wife's possibly going to die. I flip-flopped hard. I think when I look back on that moment, I've come to realize that faith is not just a salvation thing. Faith is a whole life thing. My wife's okay. It ended up being a really, actually really simple problem that they fixed. But I just look back at that. I'm like, how could I, in the same day, less than five hours apart from each other, I'm up there slapping the pulpit going, God is good. Promises are great. Trust him no matter what. Even when it doesn't seem like he's going to keep it. I'm telling everybody this. Widows, people who have lost children. I've told one mother at, at that same time who was losing her baby to, to believe in God's promises. And I'm just, I'm declaring it. And then in the emergency room, man, I jump. Like I'm spiritually schizophrenic into the far other side. God's promises were good for them, but what about now? My friends, if we're honest, this is where all of us really need to grow. We need to expand our understanding of faith to not just be a salvation issue, but to be a whole life issue. This is why we desperately need Genesis 15. In many ways, Genesis 15 is the textbook for what faith should look like in the Christian life. It's from here on that the Bible looks back at this moment in Genesis and says, yes, this kind of faith that Abram has, this is the kind of faith that all of Abram's family is to have. This is what his children should be doing as well. They should be believing in God just like this. Well, when I look at this, I'm like, okay, God. If this is the key characteristic of what it means to be a son of Abraham, how am I going to have this kind of faith? So here's the crucial question. If faith is so important, so, so uh, inseparable from a faithful Christian life, then how does Abram-like faith show up in our everyday moments? How does faith manifest itself in our daily doubts? You see, in that hospital room floor, I knew and trusted that I was saved because I believed in Jesus. I, that wasn't my problem. My problem wasn't believing that I needed to trust in Jesus for salvation. I already did that. I believed that. I held on to that. My problem was believing that God's promises, having the faith to believe that God's promises are true, even when my wife is lying there in a hospital gown. That was the challenge. And there's many of you in that same challenge today. 
You sit here and you know that you're the flip-flop. And you may be tempted to hide. Can I just encourage you not to hide? As we answered this question about Abram-like faith, it's interesting that when the Bible wants to press us to greater faith, it doesn't do it by pointing us to people who had perfect faith. That's what amazes me. It's like if I wanted to give someone a chapter to, to help their faith, Genesis 15's not it. And Abram's not the model of faith. That, that Not for me, anyway. But when the Scriptures call us to have a be better faith, it holds up Abram as the standard. It assumes that we are on this roller coaster of ups and downs and twists and turns and this chaos of jumping from faith to fear. And it's like, hmm, what is the medicine these spiritual flip-flops need? I know a spiritual flip-flop like Abram. Let's give them him. And in this, what it does is it helps you to see that if you're a spiritual spaz... You're in good company. Our father Abram was the biggest spiritual spaz there was. At one moment, he's the picture-perfect model of faith. God says, Abram, I imagine this big deep voice moment of God calling him out of Ur, right? Abram, leave the land of your father, leave Ur, and come to the promised land. And Abram believes him, trusts him, and he goes to the land of the Canaanites. Now, it seems like, at least from what we see, it's, it's, in that move, he's not necessarily afraid. I'm like, I'd be freaking out. You want me to move to the Canaanites? These are, those are bad mammoths, man. Like, you want me to go move there? He gets up, he uproots his life, takes his family, and goes to the land of Canaan. And I'm like, okay, if a dude can do that, that must be a man of faith. But then a famine hits, freaks him out, he goes to Egypt and ends up lying to save his own skin. Sells his wife to Pharaoh out of fear. I mean, do you feel the flip-flop there? In, in Genesis chapter 14, uh, his nephew Lot gets taken. And he almost instinctively, by faith, goes and grabs 300 men. And starts chasing down Kedor Laomer. To, 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 to punish this eastern king and the rescue lots like Abraham. If there's any moment to be afraid, that's it. Like these are five kings against one little bitty nomad and his 300 man army. But no, he instinctively goes in faith and defeats him. But then we come to Genesis 15. The battle is over. Abraham has put a whooping on these people, right? Like you would think, he's, there's no, this isn't a moment for fear. This isn't a moment for celebration. But we come in Genesis 15 and God arrives on the scene. And what's the first words he tells Abraham? Fear not. Pretty good indicator. Abraham's scared of something. We don't know what he's scared of. I mean... If he whooped up on these eastern kings, it's probably possible that he's scared of reprisal, a counterattack. How does he know they're not going to come after him? He's a wanted man now. He humiliated an emperor. Or, or, or maybe uh, he comes home from this battle and Sarah's like, oh, I'm so glad to see you safe at home. And he's like, yeah, honey, we whooped him. There's so much loot. She's like, oh, yeah, where is it? He's like, I gave it all back. Sarah's like, you did what now? So maybe he's scared of his wife giving back the paycheck for his mercenary work. Maybe that's what it is. We don't know what he's scared of, but he is scared. And I just, I want to point this out. Because being people of faith does not mean we never fear. 
It doesn't mean we have a perfect faith. Even the best of us, our father Abraham even, vacillated from faith to fear and sometimes within the very same moment. Some of you have already done it this morning. Jumping back and forth. But Abram, the man of faith, teaches us that he was a man of faith not because he had a perfect faith. He was the man of faith because he had an imperfect faith in a perfect God. Can I just say that one more time to you? Because I think you need to hear it one more time. Being people of faith is not about having a perfect faith. It's not about never doubting. It's not about never having fears. It's not about stumb not stumbling, not, not fumbling over yourself. That's not what it means to be children of Abraham and people of faith. If you want to be a person of faith, it's not about perfect faith. It's about taking your imperfect faith to a perfect God. Who keeps his promises. Our faith ebbs and flows. It strengthens and weakens. It's here today and gone tomorrow. It's there in the pulpit and gone in the emergency room. But I'll tell you what doesn't ebb and flow. The faithfulness of our promise keeping God. I'll tell you who never strengthens and weakens I'll tell you who never is here today and gone tomorrow. It's our perfect God. And this is how Genesis 15 compels us spiritual flip-flops to better faith. Not by shaming you and going, hey, hey, stop this. Stop this doubting nonsense. It doesn't do that. It actually says, hey, there's a doubter once upon a time just like you. And the way that God responds to this doubter is by helping his imperfect faith by pointing to his own perfection. And I think that's the offer right here in the room. You're not going to hear a sermon today that says, hey, you doubt, shame on you. Don't do that. No, no, no. Instead, what you're going to hear today is you're going to hear this message of you've got doubts. You've got imperfect faith. Well, there's good news. There's a perfect God who calls you to bet on him. Who calls you to bank on his goodness. Who calls you to trust in what he says. And you can bring your faith. Imperfect. Hobbling. Wavering. Tilting. Tumbling. Stumbling. Fumbling. And any other ling that you can think of. And you can bring it to him. Because he's a perfect God and he won't drop you. So let's just ask the question, how does Abram-like faith come into our everyday doubts and our everyday moments of life? When God first speaks to Abram, he tells him not to be afraid, but then he reassures him, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now God's already proven that he's Abram's shield. He, he, he beat Kedor Laomer, right? So, so God's going to protect him. But what about the reward? God says, hey Abram, I'm going to give you a very big reward. Now, for most of us, that would probably sound like good news. But the awkward thing for Abram at this moment is back in Genesis 12, God promised to give Abram kids. He said, I will make of you a great nation. And then he goes on to say, your offspring will inherit this land. Now, the crazy thing is, is, is we read Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, and it's like that, right? It's a five-minute read uh, between Genesis 12 to 15. Um, and, but, but for Abram, this is like years. We're talking possibly 20 years. I mean, Abram's in his 80s now. Okay, so God shows up when Abram's in his 80s. 
has no kids, and God says your reward's going to be very great. Now, in those days, to not have kids is, as one commentator puts it, an unmitigated disaster. To not have kids. There's no one to take care of you when you're old. There's no one to give all your stuff to. There's no one that's going to take care of your bride if you're gone. There's, there, that, that's it. There's no social plan, right? So, so no social security, no, no uh, hospitals or anything like that. You need kids to take care of you when you get old. Uh, you need kids to take your stuff. Well, Abram doesn't have kids. So when God says your reward will be very great, Abram just kind of kicks the dirt and he's like, God, not to be Captain Obvious here. <laughs> I don't have any kids. I mean, imagine, imagine being 99 years old. You have stage 4 cancer. You're, you've been given two weeks to live. You have no kids, no family. And then somebody shows up with a letter and says, Hey, good news. Your great uncle has left you millions. How's that good news? I'm 99 years old. Two weeks out from dying. I've got no one to live the money to. What, what, what great reward is that? And that's essentially what Abram's struggling with here. It's just like, God, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but your great reward's great, but, but I'm almost dead. But it's not a big deal. It's clear for Abram that even when he first heard the promise, it was almost like it was too good to be true. He knows he's old. He knows he has no land. He knows Sarai's barren. He knows that, he knows that scientifically reasonably, there cannot be kids that way. So when God promises kids, it's almost like you can tell between Genesis 12 and 15 that he's still, and even next week in Genesis 16, uh, it may not happen. It just sounds too good to be true. That's too, too fantastic, God. I, you telling me, and we'd have to agree with him, right? We'd have to agree with him. You telling me that God's going to use a man in his 80s, old, decrepit, wrinkled man in his 80s, nomad, and his barren old wife is going to have a biological son. That's crazy. That's crazy. That's too good to be true. So Abram's got a better solution. Can you imagine being an Abraham? God, I, look, I, I, I know you promised that. I've got something that makes much more sense. I've got something that's much more reasonable. I'll tell you what. You give me the great reward. I'll go adopt Eliezer. And I'll make him my heir. And then when you give me the reward, I'll, I'll leave it to him. I mean, that's, that, isn't that more sensible? Isn't that more realistic? Isn't that more logical? I mean, I, I can't see you giving me and Sarai a biological baby, but I can see you giving me a great reward. That's faith, right? I'm, I'm believing that you're still giving me good things, but, but let's, just, let's just do the more reasonable thing and have Eliezer be the heir. Man, we do this all the time, don't we? God has made some big promises, right? Uh, he's made promises that seem almost too good to be true. And when we start to think about them, it's almost like we take a step back and we're like, ah, let's soften those just a little bit to make them a little bit more believable. Uh, it's one of the reasons why we're not as bold in prayer as we should be. And I, I say that as a key offender here. Um, if you were to be a fly on the wall during uh, most of my prayer times, you'd find a man in absolute tension. On the one hand, I want to ask my big God for big things. There's just something inside of me that's like, okay, I want to bring God some big requests. 
And then as I'm sitting there thinking about all the things I'm going to ask him for this morning, I'm sitting there quietly at my desk, candle burning, Bible open, and I'm just thinking, God's big, I can ask him for big things, but then there's this little naggy man at the back of my head that's like, now Justin, I know you want to bring those big requests to the Lord, but can we tailor your expectations just a little bit? I know you want to ask those big things, but, but you know, why don't I ask God for this? Don't ask him for that. Ask him for, ask him for, it's, 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 it's much safer if you ask him for this. And so by the time I'm actually praying, that big thing becomes a much more logical, reasonable thing. Instead of asking for the big thing I wanted to pray, it's, it's, it's something that any average Joe could answer. I could go to my father-in-law and he would answer that prayer. But it's certainly not something reflective of something only God can do. It's a very reasonable, small, something that can be done just like that in a way that makes sense, but not something that God alone can do. Now, I'm not talking about praying things like, uh, God, give, God, you told me to have faith, so I'm going to pray for this uh, spider motorcycle to come and be in my driveway. When I get that, James says, don't pray like that, right? That's selfish, that's selfish passions. Don't pray like that. But what about the things you know that God wants you to do? What about the things that you know that God wants for you? Are you praying for a good marriage instead of a great one? I mean, that's a subtle difference, isn't it? Good makes sense. Great is unfathomable. But do you really believe that God's big enough to give you a great marriage? What about Habakkuk 2.14? The glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the oceans cover, as the seas cover the oceans or something like that. Habakkuk 2.14. God's glory is going to cover all the earth, right? He said it's going to happen. He wants that to happen. He also said in Revelation uh, that there's going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue surrounding the throne. We know that God is going to do that. God said he's going to do that. He wants to do that. Why not pray to God uh, for God to start on my block? Why am I praying these little prayers? Why not pray for every family to know the Lord on my street? You know, I'm over missions here at Stonegate and I'm thinking, man, I'm setting goals. I'm setting smart goals, right? Specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, time, whatever. I'm keeping it. I mean, these are smart goals. And, and if you were to ask me, how many missionaries do you think Stonegate can send out in the next 10 years? Man, I've got a number in my head. But I'm going to be reasonable and say 50. Faith says... What the heck are you doing? Ask for 200. Imagine in 2035, the 2035, that's a long time away. 2035, imagine standing on this stage and saying that Stonegate asked for God to send out 200 missionaries to the nations. And in the last decade, God sent out 250. Why don't we pray big prayers like that? We're asking God to plant 20 churches in a decade. Why not ask him for 50? He might do it. He might not. But I think asking the big thing is reflective of the fact that he's a big G God. When we ask for small things, it's like we're coming to a small G God. Gee, Jesus, um, my son is sick. You remember the man in Mark 9? My son's sick. And, uh, you know, if you can do anything, it would sure be nice. Mark 9 is one of the only places Jesus is visibly offended. 
he literally turns to the man in the text and he says this. If I can. If I can. Do you realize who Jesus says? This is El Shaddai in the flesh. God Almighty. Infinite. Immortal. Creator. Through whom. For whom. By whom. All things were made. What do you mean? If you can. Ask him. A prayer prayed in faith is reflective of a good and gracious and big God. My friends, I... Sorry, this is a pulpit slapping sermon, so. <laughs> faith acknowledges that God is God. He's not me. He's not you. He's not Stonegate. He's not the president. He's not even, even an emperor. He is king of the cosmos, king of it all. Big G, God. And so I can trust him with his too good to be true promises. When he says, you will live with me forever. Even if you die, you will live again. By God, it will happen. Because he's God. Next, faith compels us not just to accept the too good to be true promises of God. It also compels us to see that God's promises depend on his work, not yours. He says this in, in verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans uh, to give you this land to possess. Now we, we're going to hear that phrase again. I am the God who brought you out. We're going to see the same darkness that shows up in this text later on. We're going to see the smoke and the fire again in Exodus 20. It's the same thing. Smoke, fire, darkness. I am the God who brought you up out of Egypt in Genesis 15. Smoke, fire, darkness. I am the God who brought you out of earth. And the whole point is, doesn't matter where in the timeline you are, if you are the children of Abraham, it is God who does what he promises. It is God who does it. The promise of land for Abram is just as unbelievable as the promise for a child. Abram's barren. Well, the land's occupied. What's Abram supposed to do? Um, hey guys, uh, I know you were here first. Kenizzites, Perizzites, but you're sleeping on my tent site. And God said that's mine, so uh, scooch over. Abram's not going to do that, right? So it's not the, the thought of Abram owning the land and his children inheriting land that's already inhabited is just unthinkable. So Abram asked a fair question. How shall I know? Can I just give you good news today? I don't know what your image of God is, but God can take your doubt. God can take your doubt. There's some of us that think we can hide our doubt even from God. And you know, I think it's sometimes some of the most faith-filled thing to just look at God and say, you promised something, but how will I know? To bring him your doubt. So here's what God does. He goes, okay, Abraham, you want to know how? It's a fair question. God doesn't, God doesn't condemn him. God doesn't uh, 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 judge him. He doesn't, he doesn't take back. Okay, Abraham, don't start nothing. There won't be nothing. So quit asking questions. God doesn't do that, does he? No, God shows up in the moment. And he gives Abram a visible sign. He says, Abram, I want you to get a heifer, a goat, a ram. I want you to get some birds. And I want you to cut them in half. And he does. Now you might be like, what in the world? There's a lot of weird things in the Bible, right? And this is one of them. Um, let me just explain to you what's going on. In Genesis 34, we get a bit of insight into what was happening. 
in the old days, when you wanted to make a covenant that you were going to make a real serious promise, you would take an animal like a ram, a goat, a heifer, or whatever, and you'd cut it in half. And then you and the other party would walk through the pieces. And basically what you were saying is, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, let me become like this ram. Like this dead gutted animal. And if you don't keep your end of the bar bargain, may you become like this dead and gutted animal. You should try that next time with your cable guy. <laughs> hey man, look, contracts are all nice, but let's do this old version of contracts. I've got a dog in the backyard. It's going to be weird, but probably won't go over so well. This is not the sermon going up on podcast, by the way. But that's essentially what's happening. Now, God tells Abram to do that, and he does it, and then Abram falls asleep. And then look at who walks through the pieces. Where's Abram? He's not walking. He's napping on the ground. The fact that Abram's napping on the ground should tell you what God thinks about Abram's contribution. He has nothing to contribute. He's asleep. God walks through the pieces and it's like God saying, may I become like these dead gutted animals if I don't keep the promises. And you're like, if you are like me and you're like, wait a second, God, how can you, the in infinite, immortal, majestic, all-powerful God become like a dead gutted animal? God says, exactly. Just as unthinkable as it is that God be could become like a dead gutted animal, it's unthinkable that God can't keep his promise. Unthinkable. And what's crazy is, is when God shows it again and again and again, he proves to us that it is up to him and his life to keep his promises. The ironic thing is we span forward hundreds of years later to get to Jesus and Golgotha, God actually did become like a sacrificial animal to keep his promise. What he told Abram he would do in Genesis 15, he did in Matthew 26. He died like a lamb so that we could have the promises to Abraham. My friends, the point of all of this is God's promises depend on who? Not you. God. God is the one who must do it. Now, faith helps us get the too good to be true promises of God and accept them. It also helps us understand that it's God's work. It also helps us with timing, right? I don't know if you know this yet. Uh, if you don't, you will find out God is not bound to your scheduler. God doesn't check your Google calendar before he plans when and how his promises come to fruition. It's just a fact of life. In our household, you do not say the words, we should go get ice cream sometime, unless you're willing to get in the car and be at the shop within the hour. Now, if you think I'm describing my kids, no, I'm describing me and the kids. <laughs> Rachel just knows the words ice cream should not come out of anybody else's mouth unless the five of us kids are going to run out the front door planning what flavors we're going to get. 
I mean, when a friend comes over, it's like Rachel has a debriefing. Hey, I know you're going to want to talk about getting together sometime. Don't mention ice cream unless you want to see my husband jump out a window. <laughs> Words like now, not now, later, next week, when we get paid again, that doesn't apply to ice cream. <laughs> the time to give a promise for ice cream is now. But God doesn't work like that, does he? He tells Abram, Abram, I got these amazing promises for you. Nation of children. Offspring as numerous as the stars. If you could count the stars, that's how many kiddos you're going to have. But Abram, you're going to die before you see any of that. And your kiddos are going to be in Egypt for four generations. Before even the first installment, not all of them, the first installment comes. Hebrews 11.13 says that Abram trusted the Lord and he did what? Died in faith. Not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. When he hears the Lord, God told him, God, Abram, you're going to be a pile of bones. And my promises still won't come, but they will come. My friends, that's what faith does for us. Even if God's promises don't come in our lifetime, even if you are nothing but dusty old bones buried in a graveyard, guess what? It doesn't stop God. Why? Because the God who made those promises before your death is the same God who is the God in your death, and he's the same God who is the God of the resurrection. He's God of the living and the dead. You might die of cancer before God's, God's good promises come. You might be laid off. You might lose a loved one. Still, faith beckons you to say that even when God's timing is different than yours, God is the good promise-keeping God. Death itself cannot stop him. Why? Because God is bigger. God is bigger. Can you imagine a God bigger than death? A God who's so faithful that he remembers a promise he made 400 years ago. He looks at this moment right now and, and man, if Abraham was in the room, here's the stars, Abraham. Numerous. We still don't have land. <laughs> But because God is faithful, because God is God, because God is who he says he is, we can trust that even if the promises seem delayed, God will always do what he says. Not one word of his good promises will fail, no matter how long it takes to get us there. And we just bask in that as the people of faith. Now, before we end our time, I have to end by talking about the most important thing about faith. Faith accepts the too good to be true promises of God. It accepts that God must be the one who does his promises, that his promises depend on him. It also accepts that God's timing might be different than ours. But finally, when we have faith, faith is the only way we are made right with God. Go back up to verse 6. It says, And he believed the Lord, Abram, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Now you look up the old word righteousness. The old word righteousness means, uh, righteous means just, innocent, 
guiltless, faultless. I mean, those are, those are some of the synonyms that come to mind about a righteous person. And the, the picture that you're getting about righteousness is the righteous are those who obey God, who don't sin. What's the problem with that? There is, what's the scripture say? Romans 3, none righteous, not even one. Here's the thing about us sinners. We are really good at sinning, which means we're really bad at being righteous. Which means that none of us are right with God. None of us are, 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 are good with God, thumbs up with God. So how then is righteousness given? Abram teaches us, Abram, the great sinner. I mean, the man who sold his wife. If you're not sure if Abram's a sinner, just ask Sarai after the, exodus, uh, the, uh, the Egypt event in Genesis 14. She'll confirm for you. And if you're still not sure, then come back next week in Genesis 16 when he sleeps with Hagar and we'll confirm. Abram's a sinful dude. He's a sinner. So then, how is Abram righteous? Not by obeying the Lord, but by trusting God's promises. Think about how good the gospel is. God declares that if we trust in him and his promise, which is his son, he counts that as if we have always obeyed the Lord. That is grace. All of it to show that the promises aren't built on merit. The promises rest on grace. As Romans 3 and 4 says. The promises rest on grace. God has given this promise. And, and we believe. And God counts that as obedience. You see Abram and I are on the, on the same plane. We're in different timelines. Abram's looking forward to the cross. He knows that God has promised a redemptive son. Through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. He doesn't know about Jesus of Nazareth or anything. He doesn't know that name. But he knows that God has promised a redemptive, blessing-restoring son. And God has just made a promise saying, If I don't keep it, Abraham, may I become like a dead-gutted animal on the ground. And he believes. And then Jesus shows up on the scene and Jesus says, Abram saw my day. And was glad. So Abram's back here in the past. And he's looking ahead to his son. The son of Abram. Jesus. Died, who died like a slaughtered lamb on the cross. And I look back. And I put my faith in the same thing. And that's what it means to be the children of Abraham. Abram's family believe in Jesus. Our faith is centered on him. Why? Because he's the yes and amen to all of God's promises. So, what do you do now? If you're a spiritual spaz like me and you're an unfaithful flip-flop, what do you do? Can I just encourage you to air it out to God? Some of the best application at this moment is not to do anything, but just to meet with God this morning and to say, God... You've said some things that are really hard for me to believe. Really difficult for me to accept. How can I know? Maybe you need to come to Jesus this morning like the man in Mark 9 and say, Help my unbelief. God welcomes that. Man, on, on last week we had these tornado warnings going off, sirens going off all in Ovilla. My kids are scared. They were rightly doubting how a bathtub could protect us from a tornado. 
I don't punish them. I'll be like, how dare you doubt my protection? Trust the bicycle helmet I put on your head. <laughs> I don't do that. I came down to my kids and I said, kids, I know you're scared. There's a God bigger than tornadoes. And we're just going to trust him. Can we, can we just pray? We bring it to him? Guys, God does that for you. If you're in doubt, bring it to him. He's not going to slap you, smack you, or kick you out of his family. He knows you better than you know you. He knows you're in doubt. He knows you're wavering. He knows you're stumbling and fumbling and falling all over yourself. So bring it to him and say, Jesus, please help my unbelief. I've got stage four cancer and I might die in a couple weeks. Help me to believe in the resurrection. My kid has rejected you. Help me to believe that you saved the lost. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen this week. Help me to believe that you're in control and that you're satisfying. That's a prayer that Jesus honors. Because it's a prayer that's dependent on him. And then finally, I just want to encourage you. Doubt is escalated in isolation. Your doubt is made, just magnified in isolation. Your only hope is, in, is to be in a community that magnifies Jesus. If your doubt's big, be in a community of faith like ours. That has a big Jesus and can remind you that he's big. Because when I'm looking at my situation, it seems really big. Just to, just to tie off that story that I started off with, I had three men pick me up from the floor and pray for me out of that hospital room. Doubts and all. Some of you just need to bring a buddy and to pray. Some of you need to come up to the front and let our pastors pray for you. A church that doesn't allow doubters is a church that's going to produce skeptics. That's what Tim Keller said once. And we don't want to be that church. We want you to be able to air out and say, I had massive trouble believing this week. And I don't know what to do. I'm a flip-flop. Great, flip-flop. Come fall into your God. And fall into the community of faith. And you will find reassurance of God's promises. Let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you. We thank you that even though we're spiritual flip-flops, you are a good and gracious God who doesn't kick us out, smack us, kick us out of, of your family, Father. You meet us. Father, I imagine there's so many people here in this room today that if they were honest, they would say, I resonate with Abraham. I resonate with the feeling of just believing that your too good to be true promises are actually true. I struggle to believe and I'm left here asking, how shall I know? God, will you meet with these doubters and these spiritual flip-flops? Will you meet with us even though we're spazzes who don't believe, will you help our unbelief? Increase our faith and remind us that you are the God big enough to keep your promises. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.